From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. We're honored that you're joining us today. Whether you're in eastern Canada where our guest is, and hopefully he will be joining us, I have not heard from him yet, and you're starting to think about lunch. Ron, he's, well, on, the, the, West he's Coast. on the line. Your guest Excellent. is on the okay. line. Okay, so I will go ahead and go through the intro, and that's good news. Thank you, Pete. <laughs> uh, and if you're on the West Coast sipping a cup of coffee, or you're in Europe, maybe finishing up a few more emails before heading home, or you're already home enjoying a glass of wine, or if you're listening to the show in the archive someday in the future, I'm sure you'll be glad you joined us. I have a lot of questions for our guests, and we welcome questions from you and other listeners. And since many countries around the world celebrate either Armistice Day, Remembrance Day, Veterans Day, or even Independence Day in a few countries, more listeners will be home along with their kids. What a great way to start building their knowledge about finance and investing. Get together around the radio player and join in today's conversation. Now, the advantage of joining us during the live show is you get to ask questions. And hopefully, Pete, you have our uh, chat window up. I haven't checked that yet, having uh, scrambled around here on a few other things. But uh, hopefully our chat window is up there. I will go ahead and check that, make sure we are up and running. So anyway, we have a chat window down below the player. Uh, that should be up here shortly. And uh, that will usually be the easiest way to send your comments or uh, to um, send us in some uh, questions along as we go through the show. There is another option. We'll talk about that shortly. Now, incidentally, this past week I went to an excellent meeting organized by Jason Slade. You may recall he was a guest on this program, and we're planning to have him back in the next few months to talk about annuities. He organized a presentation by one of J.P. Morgan's asset management vice presidents. He shared some highlights from a recent quarterly data book they prepare. They prepare it every quarter. And that book, you might want to write this down, well worth finding if you've never seen it, is called Guide to the Markets. That's part of J.P. Morgan's Market Insights series, so just called Guide to the Markets. And uh, that is a registered trademark of J.P. Morgan. So if you look up J.P. Morgan Guide to the Markets, you should be able to get a copy online in PDF version. But excellent, excellent data, just a huge amount. But it was a real pleasure to talk to a person who's well-versed on the various topics we cover on this show. I was very surprised. And he not only had a chart covering a topic we talked about over a couple months ago about the excess reserves held by the banks, he was also well-versed on the implications, and you may recall I've been sharing that one of the major reasons banks aren't lending is that interest rates are just too low, which he wholeheartedly agreed with. And if you weren't aware, J.P. Morgan is one of the largest investors who own the U.S. Federal Reserve. So when I asked him about the ramifications, he seemed to fully appreciate the two-edged sword that J.P. Morgan faces as interest rates rise. You see, the bank will have an opportunity to earn far more on loans they make, and those loans will boost the economy. But as an owner of the Federal Reserve, their investment will be impacted very negatively. 
as I said, very refreshing to find others who fully understand and appreciate the critical information we try to share with you here on the show. He also shared an article with me on Easy Money, which I look forward to reading this week. Now, our topic today is commodity trading, or if you prefer, commodity investing. It's one of the least known and least understood of the alternative investments, despite the fact that they're widely available financial instruments. They're also investments in things we use on a regular basis. And it kind of is similar to something I mentioned when we talked about investing in real estate. Each of us lives somewhere, and someone owns that property. Either you do, an investor, or a group of investors. So the next time you complain about prices going up, whether it's on food, fuel, or housing, think back to the show. While you may have little choice to but, uh, but to agree to pay a little bit more if they do raise the prices, or you'd have to do without, and that's tough with housing, some investors earning more as those prices rise. Obviously, one of the objectives of the Wealth DNA Radio Show is to give you more opportunities to be that investor who's earning more. One of the objectives behind the series of shows we've been doing on alternative investments is to make sure you know that there are far, far more than just stocks and bonds that should be in a well-diversified portfolio. And we've been walking through a variety of different investments that should be in a portfolio, especially as your portfolio glows. Excuse me, grows, and hopefully glows as well especially as stocks climbed to all-time highs and bonds just had a 35-year bull market. And bull markets don't go on forever. We started this series back in April of 2012 with several shows on direct investment in real estate, and then we returned to it in October of 2012, and the majority of our shows since then have been on a range of alternative investments. Now, to make sure we cover the essentials of commodity investing today, we decided to bring in the person who wrote the book. Our special guest will be John Stevenson, author of the little book of commodity investing. But before we bring him on, I'd like to do, as I often do, put commodity investing in perspective. Let's step back to the very beginning. Even before the Ten Commandments of Investing were handed down, the scholars of the time recognized that there are two and only two ways to invest. They tried to keep it simple. Despite all the financial market complications in the centuries since then, that statement, by the way, is still true. Now, clearly our regular listeners should know what those two investment types are, but sometimes these fundamental truths get lost in this daily information clutter and noise around us. There are only two ways to invest. One is you own, or two, you loan. And every conceivable investment fits into one of those categories, or has some blend of ownership and lending, or is a derivative of other owning or loaning investments. Now, last month we talked with Lori Itkin on calls, puts, and options. And as we mentioned during that show, those financial instruments are indeed derivatives of other investments, generally investments where you own something like stock in a company. Now, I mention this because commodities are also an instrument. You own some amount of that commodity, or you buy or sell a derivative on an ownership position. 
Now, for those of you who missed prior shows, like the one with Lori Itkin or the one we did on hedging back in September 10th, 2012, you'll definitely want to go back and listen to those shows to complement today's show. It's important to know that investing in commodities is an ownership investment since you shouldn't try to compare the returns or the risks to investments where you provide a loan. Owning has a totally different profile and place in your portfolio and in your investment pyramid than loaning. Now, I can generally say that with one exception, that's lending to a family member without a written contract, which, by the way, is a bad idea, that lending provides you steady income. On the other hand, owning provides you growth and appreciation with the higher variability and higher risk that goes along with it. So as we talk about commodities today with John Stevenson, focus on them as an alternative to owning stocks, owning income-generating real estate, or owning equity in a private business. Don't try to compare them to loans like bonds, mortgage notes, or certificates of depreciation at your local bank. Hmm, did I just slip and call CDs certificates of depreciation? Oh, well, I'd like to stress a more important point I just covered. You may have missed it. You don't own bonds. You don't own CDs or a mortgage note. You hold a piece of paper that documents your loan to that company, country, bank, or property owner. That piece of paper is an asset. But just like any piece of paper called money with a past president or a queen on it, some of those loans are secured by some collateral or money printing press but most bonds are not, just like your personal loan to a family member is also not secured. Today is November 11th, 2013. It's 9.10. Oh, boy, am I running behind schedule. 9.10 a.m. in Arizona, 11.10 a.m. on the East Coast, and 17.10 in continental Europe. It's the only day ever like it, so we'll do everything possible to make it a great one. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. The show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss a show like the earlier ones on alternative investments or the ones I mentioned today, you can find them on the archives. Just go to www.wealthdna.us. We list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. Now, we welcome your comments and questions during the show. Due to the number of questions, I'm going to suggest the chat window below the radio player. Uh, if that's not an option, you can call in 917-388-4162, and it's also shown at the top of the screen. Now, the U.S. equity markets which ended last week at record highs, are off to a slightly positive start. Asia was up strongly. Europe is up, and Brazil is up. Hmm, what is all the optimism? Now, given our topic today, we, you might be wondering how the U.S. commodity markets are doing. Now, one thing I can safely say, with very few exceptions, they're doing the same as in Canada, Europe, Asia, and South America. Why? Well, let's ask our guest. As I mentioned, our special guest today is John Stevenson. He's based in Toronto. He's a senior vice president and portfolio manager with First Asset Investment Management. And as I mentioned earlier, he's also the author of the little book of commodity investing. Later in the show, I'll share some information about some of the honors he's received 
as an investment advisor. Let's give a excuse me a warm radio welcome to John Stevenson. Welcome, John. Thank you for joining us live today, despite being a holiday in Canada as well as in the U.S. Well, it's my pleasure to join you, Ron. I think it's a fabulous show, and I'm happy to be part of it today. Excellent. Now, I gave a very brief overview of background. How do you introduce yourself? Let's say you're at a cocktail party with friends like we have here on the radio. How do you introduce yourself? Well, I say I'm a portfolio manager, and I look at a wide range of both equity, bond, and commodities uh, throughout really North America, but frankly, a lot of it now encompasses the world. And one of the things I think that's interesting about the world of commodities that we're going to chat about today is that it really gives you an insight into what is happening in the world. Um, It gives you an insight into the world of currencies. It gives you an insight into the world of markets broadly in countries as well. So I think it's really uh, the missing part of the investment equation. And whether you decide to invest directly in commodities or in commodity-producing companies, for example, or you just want to keep these indicators up on your screen, it gives you a really good sense of what is happening overall in the world of investments. Okay. Now, even though you're based in Toronto, which has been in the international news for the wrong (laughs) reasons lately, uh, we won't spend time on politics or whether or not you've used illegal substances. No, you know what? Uh, No, certainly not smoking crack cocaine uh, like our mayor has. um, Well, it's quite embarrassing. It it certainly at least has uh, gotten us some notoriety, probably for the wrong reason, but (laughs) there's many other good reasons to comment. Uh, Probably not the weather right now, but uh, in general, it's a city that's on the move, and it's very exciting. Unfortunately, our our elected representative is, is quite an embarrassment. Well, I do. I really do like Toronto. I spent a lot of time up there. I used to live uh, just across the pond, if you will, in both Buffalo and, and Rochester, which I didn't mention to you earlier. But uh, anyway, ho- who knows? Maybe this mayoral scandal lead to some debate about legalizing marijuana or other substances in Ontario. Yeah, well, it's certainly a part of the uh, federal platform for one of the parties that is, um, you know, there will be an election in a year, two years' time federally here, and uh, certainly the Liberal Party and uh, its um, uh, leader, Justin Trudeau, that is the only plank of his uh, his party platform. Uh, I don't think there's a groundswell in fairly conservative Canada for um, legalizing marijuana or anything else, but certainly uh, it does seem to be the flavor of the day, and one party has, has leapt on it and, and really made it their only uh, platform thus far. But I think what most people care about is the, the economy, their well-being financially, um, I think those are kind of the key areas. So hopefully they can stake out some different ground uh, there and, and perhaps offer a, an alternative beyond just legalizing marijuana. There you go. Incidentally, and I should mention to you and uh, maybe others in Canada as that debate uh, uh, goes on with that party and, and our other listeners that about three years ago we had Dr. Michael Carlton on. We had a, pro- a program called Addiction to Poverty where we talked about the real issues related to chemical dependency. So it might be worth uh, looking into that show. I had so much fun that I almost forget about it, forgot about our key topic as we talked a lot about the uh, medical marijuana at that time being legalized. But Okay, now putting drugs Drugs aside, some of our listeners are multitaskers, and I really love your website name. Would you share that with our audience so they can check it out while uh, while they listen? Yeah, no, I would uh, absolutely be delighted. So it's www.stevensonfiles.com, and Stevenson is spelt with a PH instead of a V. So Very important. Get Very that important. right? P- uh, yeah. You're, you're exactly. good to go. 
Yep, stevensonfiles.com. So if we introduce you as uh, Mr. X in our announcement, then we could just say that your email will be X-Files. We just substitute uh, your real last name, Stevenson, for that X. Uh, uh, great name, easy to remember. Yeah, it's uh, it's been uh, easy to remember, and I think uh, certainly there's uh, lots of resources, not only on commodities, but um, stocks and bonds as well. So we'll absolutely information on there. Tell us a little bit about First Asset Investment Management uh, and your role there. You're Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager. Tell us a little bit about yeah, that. I'm in charge of um, all of the equity investing uh, mandates as well as all the commodity investing mandates at First Asset. We're um, the fastest growing um, fund company in Canada. We're roughly $3 billion in, um, in assets under management. Wow. Um, we do the whole range of um, investment uh, solutions for investors. So we do closed-end funds, which are similar to mutual funds, which we mm-hmm. also do. So we have a mutual fund division. And we uh, have partnered with Morningstar as well as offering our own exchange-traded funds. So we really mm-hmm. offer everything. Um, some of them are fixed-income solutions. Some of them are um, equity solutions. Uh, some are even commodity-based solutions. Um, so we really offer a full range of them, and um, you know it's uh, very easy to um, invest with us. Many are listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, some of our funds, uh, we've probably got uh, roughly 40 funds listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange at present. Fantastic. Now, given you manage a variety of different assets, let me start with a very broad question. Uh, given where the stock and bond markets are, which I mentioned in the intro, and the issues that we face today. Here we are in November of 2013. Uh, the questions that I and virtually every uh, investor asks daily, should I stay the course? Should I sell bonds? Uh, should I sell all of my bonds? Should I hedge my bond position? Should I sell my stocks? What do I do with available cash? Oh, how do you respond to kind of that broad rush question? Well, I think, um, first of all, you have to look at what is happening globally and you have to look at what the, the major influences on the market are. And I think mm-hmm. what we're seeing right now, and I've, I've been very bearish at various points in time, um, in the past number of years, uh, say five years, I've had as much as 65% in cash. Uh, wow. Today I'm fully invested. So that reflects a very optimistic um, point of view going forward. But I would say that when you look at what's happening globally, but particularly just focusing on the U.S., uh, it's clear to me, and I think to many others, that growth um, has been assisted and has continued to be assisted by the Federal Reserve. Uh, mm-hmm. That same situation to a lesser degree is mirrored in Europe, to a much greater degree is mirrored in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at what they are doing in terms of quantitative easing, it's roughly triple the size yes. of the U.S. program on a per capita or per GDP basis. So it's an enormous amount of stimulus. And then in China, um, their stimulus tends to take the form of direct uh, investing in infrastructure projects, but nonetheless, they're stimulative. So essentially, what we have is a world where all the major economic blocks, whether it be Europe, whether it be Japan, whether it be emerging markets led by China, uh, whether it be the United States of America, they are all saying to us as investors, go out there, take some risk. And they're saying that because they're key, and, and the reason that message is resonating is the cost of borrowing or loaning, if you're a loan uh, in your own business, isn't very, uh, very substantial. So if you take out a loan, it's not going to cost you a lot. So what many investors are doing is looking for opportunities to invest um, where they see the greatest risk and return um, balance, 
has been in U.S. equities. And frankly, mm-hmm. I do see that continuing for some time, perhaps okay. through all of next year. So I do think it's a good time to invest because essentially um, the Fed is telling us that. And to take the opposite view, to be more defensive, I think you're really fighting the Fed. And I think that mm-hmm. historically has proven to be a losing game. Very well said. Now, um one of the things I guess I'd, I'd, I'd kind of get a little bit more specific, let's say you're talking to an aggressive investor, and of course that's still a fairly broad category, what would be maybe a good allocation of stocks, bonds, and commodities uh, for that investor uh, today, again in November 2013? Well, I think for someone who's aggressive, no, uh, I, I think in general you want to re-rate um, and weight more heavily uh, equities going forward. We're living longer. I mm-hmm. think uh, it's harder to see uh, opportunity in bonds going forward to the same degree. As you know, they move inversely with uh, with yields or, or rates. And, and I do believe that we're ultimately moving to a higher rate platform. It may not be right away. It may be a year from now, but, but it's right. definitely there. Um, and I think ultimately what's going to happen is North American investors are going to benefit from the $6 trillion of retail deposits that are in fixed income eventually rotating into equities. So mm-hmm. I would say a, a fairly uh, conservative uh, or sort of aggressive investor might want to have uh, 60% or more in equities, maybe as low as uh, uh, 20% uh, to 30% in bonds, and then the balance in commodities slash real estate. So I think mm-hmm. you definitely want to look at um, um, weighting the risk assets more heavily, particularly given the backdrop, which is one of low rates, um, eventually moving to higher rates, and uh, that will favor commodities and it will also favor um, stocks. Okay. How about a conservative investor? Because obviously they've been counting on bonds for income, and by the way, they've had an income, uh, they've had an a, a, a appreciation kicker that they probably have been ignoring uh, as a part of that. What, what do you look at for an allocation for that conservative investor today? I think for a more conservative investor, I would say that um, I would shift the focus from um, stocks just generally. Um, and what is working in the stock market is the cyclical investments right now. Um, but I would look at more of the income-oriented or defensive ones where you're, you're still owning, but you're getting a yield uh, through the dividend. So um, whether they be uh, pipeline companies, uh, utilities, okay. Some of the more conservative investments, but I would keep the weighting roughly the same. Um, certainly bonds do still make sense for, for many people because I think rates will, will remain low uh, for the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think the, the great rotation has started in earnest yet. But I think it's, it's time to be uh, aware and sensitive to the fact that it's unlikely to, to remain a majority weight even as you uh, approach or even enter retirement. I think it's uh, important to have still the majority of your assets, your risk assets, in in stocks rather okay. than bonds. All right. Yeah, that's an excellent point, and it is something we stress not to uh, ever uh, give up on the stock or the commodity markets or real estate just because um, times are changing. But let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki, and I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Now, if you missed some of the prior shows, like the ones we did on told, excuse me, alternative investments, or you want to re-listen to them, 
We maintain an archive of shows on www.wealthdna.us. And if you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, just send me an email, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. And reminder, during the radio show, we welcome you and our other listeners to ask questions. Easiest to start a chat in the little chat window under the radio player. Uh, you can call in. The number's at the top of the screen. Our topic today is commodity investment. And uh, we've been uh, discussing this with John Stevenson. He's a senior vice president, portfolio manager with First Asset Investment Management, which is a much larger company than I had uh, thought. I didn't pick that up in my research. And the author of the little book of commodity investing. John, the series of little books, as well as the Four Dummies series, quite frankly, tend to be wonderful resources on any given topic. Now, what inspired you to write that book, and when was that? Well, I wrote the book uh, two and a half years ago, uh, Ron, mm-hmm. and um, I, I think you're right. I think it's a great series. Uh, I had written a previous book uh, that was focused more on Canadian investors coming out of the 08 collapse, mm-hmm. and uh, I really felt that what we were witnessing with the 08 collapse was a fundamental reordering of the world. Um, and I think that much has been written, much has been talked about. But I think, you know, before, whether you lived in Canada or Europe, for example, uh, somewhere other than the United States, you followed mm-hmm. the U.S. Uh, because that's really all that mattered was Fed policy um, and, and where that would lead, um, lead the world. But now we have another actor, which is China. And Correct. the interplay between China and the United States um, is fascinating. And in terms of the world of commodities, uh, to be a good commodity investor, you need to be a good China watcher. And I think that's really what has been so uh, interesting. Of course, this transformation has been going on for 30-plus years. Sure. But I think it just in the last four or five has really become influential in terms of the world of investing. And I think why it's, uh, it's, it's hit a tipping point, I guess, essentially, where nowadays uh, people look at China and they think, wow, this is a major force to be reckoned with. And before, uh, clearly uh, those changes were quite dramatic, but uh, they hadn't hit everyone's radar screen. So I thought the rise of China uh, and how to play that as an investment theme was really the catalyst behind it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what I'd like to do is, is some of our listeners are, are not very familiar or maybe never have invested in commodities. Let's start with just a definition. What are commodities? And are there various groups or categories, or we just call them commodities and treat them all equally? Oh, great question, Ron. I think um, you know, you're absolutely right. Commodities are real things. Uh, they're things that we use every day. Orange juice is a commodity. Uh, sugar is a commodity. Coffee is a commodity. Those are some of the ones that you know at least feature pretty prominently in my breakfast. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Particularly right. the coffee. We just got the breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> uh, my my breakfast uh, menu. But there are also things like steel. Uh, there are also things that we uh, sometimes adorn uh, our loved ones with: uh, platinum, uh, uh, gold, silver. Uh, so precious metals are there. Oil, of course, is the biggest and most important uh, commodity. Natural gas is a commodity. Uh, but they're real tangible things. And I think um, what is so interesting about them is they, they work, uh, they usually zig when uh, stocks and bonds are zagging. So I think it's important to see uh, what's happening. But they're real things. And in terms of categories, uh, agricultural commodities are, uh, you know, wheat, uh, soybean, um, rice, uh, those are all some of the typical agricultural commodities. Uh, there's soft, other soft commodities or foodstuffs, 
which would be the orange juices and the sugars mm-hmm. and the coffees of the world. Uh, then the metals are broken down into industrial or base metals, which uh, the most important ones are aluminum, zinc, nickel, and copper, the precious metals. And then, generally speaking, the other big, big category, which many people follow, uh, is energy. And, of course, crude oil is the, the biggest and most followed of all the commodity complexes. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I think that's that's very helpful. And again, it's those tangible things we use every single day. Okay. Let's. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm going to make a, an assumption here that the reason commodity investment got started is that uh, producers and users of those commodities had to somehow deal with hedging. And I assume that's the the starting point of commodity investing. Correct. Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. Um, that's where it really started. It started in the agricultural com- uh, complex uh, initially. Okay. Uh, largely in the Midwestern United States where organized trading um, began. And it was really farmers saying, you know, we face uncertainty. We plant uh, in the spring and harvest in the fall or or summer, and we don't know what will happen with prices, and we're taking a leap of faith. How do we protect ourselves going forward? But, of course, the same theory uh, and thesis uh, has been applied to many producers who, you know, face uncertainty what, what the future price will be. Okay, let's use an example, and, and, and if you would, Arizona happens to specialize in some of the largest copper mines are right here. Uh, let's use an example in that metal uh, copper, and uh, let's say that it's a copper mine uh, as the producer and then maybe a cable and wire producer who buys a lot of copper. Uh, how would they have used or how would they use these uh, commodities uh, in their, in their uh, dealings? Okay, so if you're a copper miner, you uh, obviously are mining uh, over many, many years, mm-hmm. and you're trying to uh, organize your business in such a way that you know that you're going to get a certain price. Now, copper has for many years traded um, at a dollar a pound or less. Uh, mm-hmm. Currently, it's trading at $3.25. So if you have a mine, and perhaps the grade is a little bit lower, but it makes perfect economic sense and works well and gives you a high profit margin at $3.25 a pound. Uh, But you want to make sure that the price doesn't drop uh, unexpectedly and you're stuck producing a commodity that uh, either no one wants. You sell forward in the market, in the commodity markets, your production. You know how much you tend to produce, uh, how many pounds or tons of copper you'll produce over time and, and what timeline and you sell it forward to someone who has an opposite view and wants to lock in price, um, who's also price sensitive, but for different reasons because they're using copper um, for wire or cable or uh, manufacturing of some kind, and so they're willing to take the opposite view. So what happens is you go in to the futures market, the commodities Mm -hmm. are futures is what we're really speaking of, and you buy uh, contracts, pieces of paper, and they specify how much notional uh, copper you're going to produce and at what price, and then assuming you can agree on the price, you settle. And say you can lock in price of $3.25 for a year out or you know, mm-hmm. two years out or three years out or six months out, however long you want to go. And many times producers, whether they be farmers or copper miners, they don't necessarily hedge all of it, but they want to hedge enough that they know they're going to have a certain amount of money at the end of the day. The same thing, the flip side of that, is a uh, user, an end user of the metal, uh, in this case copper, 
who says, you know what, we have to be able to set our prices a year in advance for our electronic goods or whatever it is mm-hmm. we're producing. We need to go into Best Buy and other retailers around uh, the world and, and throughout North America, have a price that isn't bouncing up and down, and we want right. to have established prices. So they take the other point of view, mm-hmm. and they uh, also lock in. So that's a hedged uh, transaction. And then the third participant in the futures market is the speculator, and that tends to be a, a money manager or an individual investor or a hedge fund, and they have a view of a directional view of where things mm-hmm. are going to go. And so oftentimes they are the uh, closing entry, if you will, in terms of what will, uh, what will it take to um, um, settle those trades because they take the opposite view when there isn't a perfect match between producers and end users for a particular commodity. Okay. Now, there are other ways they could be doing this. So technically, if that uh, miner were selling to a specific set of different um, uh, you know, to different customers, if you will, they could have some sort of supply contract, right? That'd be another way oh, they could absolutely. do it. We kind of you, do that. You in could business. have a direct contract. Mm-hmm. What else do they use? Are options an av- available um, tool, financial instrument they can use in the case of commodities? Yeah, you can use options. Uh, you can vertically vertically integrate, so the uh, producer of the electronic mm-hmm. goods could buy the mine itself. Uh, many people have done that. Um, Harry Winston has done that with diamonds. They have a financial interest in. Uh, the Diavik mine in the Northwest Territories. So there's for diamonds. So there's no question you can you can do it many ways. But you know, like everything else, it tends to be uh, a, a world of specialization. So right. for many miners, they're the experts of getting it out of the ground. Uh, the retailer is the expert in marketing it to the public. Uh, the you know the electronic good in this case, and the manufacturer is the expert in um, putting these products. Uh, into the into the showroom in a useful format. So it tends to be that the market itself, the futures market for commodities, is generally the way to go. But you mm-hmm. can buy options on it. You can have any kind of derivation you can think of, just in the same way that you do with equities. Okay. Now, most financial advisors never talk about investing in commodities. Why is that? <laughs> well, I think the real reason is because you can... Uh, enter a commodity uh, position on the futures market with tremendously little down. In other words, you can mm-hmm. use leverage. <coughs> so to buy an oil contract, for example, you might need only to put up 5% of the total value. Now, the issue, of course, becomes um, the way the, the commodity markets work is there's a clearinghouse. So every time the contract moves, because price moves or the view of um, the macro conditions move, you may end up continually putting up money uh, to uh, substantiate your margin contract with the clearinghouse. On the other hand, uh, you can uh, continue to accrue gains as uh, the other party puts up money. So it tends Mm -hmm. to be um, many people who've had success or failure have done so because of the impact of leverage. And I think uh, for many people, that introduces a higher level of risk than, than many people are willing to take. I think the the second reason why people shy away from it is um, because it tends to move in opposite directions uh, to the stock and bond markets. Uh, And it's a useful barometer for looking at these other markets. But I think many people just view it with suspicion. Um, It tends to move in long cycles. Uh, There's usually, on average, a 20-year cycle where commodities boom. 
and wow. in a 20 year cycle where commodities are essentially dead. I would argue we are part way through the 20 year cycle right now. And I think uh, for many people who've you know, been through 35 great years in the bond market or, or a decade or so of great investing in the stock market, it's hard to understand something new. And the reason right. these cycles are so long dated is it frankly takes that long uh, for commodities, uh, many of which to come um, and, and actually have supply um, start to balance demand. The average mine takes 10 years and costs a billion dollars or more to, pro- to, to enter production. So that's, I think, the reason for the long-dated cycle, but it's, it's established at approximately 20 years in length. And I would say right now we're into uh, partway through, about halfway through a commodity bull cycle. Hmm. Now, one of the things I noticed, I, I moved to Europe back in the early 1990s and lived there for a number of years, and I started tracking the various uh, currencies I had to as part of my job. But I started realizing there might be an opportunity by kind of tracking some of the inflection points and realizing that currencies do move uh, in some pattern and usually triggered by various things. Uh, and I hunted around for a broker to handle my own personal transactions. I was going to do some uh, currency uh, futures, and I found there were very few. I mean, if we had a hundred uh, stockbrokers in the city, there, you know, in terms of companies, there might be uh, only one uh, commodity broker that I could deal with. Is that still the case? Has that changed? I mean, how how do the brokerage houses um, uh, differ as far as commodities versus stocks? Well, there are certainly uh, commodity brokers, and if you do choose to, as an individual investor, open up a commodity trading account. Um, you need to go through a licensed commodity broker. Man Financial would be an example of one that, that does it. Um, okay. There's certainly been others that have, uh, have done it. Um, there's certain divisions of bigger companies uh, that do do commodity uh, futures. And so all of those are, are what you need to, to put up. You, can cert- you don't necessarily need as an individual investor uh, to use uh, the margin. You can fully fund the commodity purchases, which, of course, de-risks it okay. from uh, an investment perspective. But, yes, you, you're generally looking for someone who's licensed as a commodity um, trading advisor, and uh, that is um, something that's very important, and you do need – separate licensing um, to do that and to be a broker than you would with uh, just for stocks. Okay. So in many cases, I assume that some financial advisors aren't also earning any commission if somebody does the uh, moves their money over to a commodity broker there, so there actually would be competition for them to some extent. Yeah, they're, 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 they're definitely um, uh, competition, um, but many of these um, – Firms also offer stocks and bonds in the full range of assets, and uh, certainly there's many people who are licensed both in in equities. I'm an example of someone who sure. uh, is licensed both in commodities and uh, equities uh, investing. So it's certainly uh, something that can be there. There are also funds that invest exclusively in commodities. Uh, often these are more uh, aggressive alternatives like hedge funds, uh, but there are commodity trading uh, funds that, that specialize in it, and all of those professionals working there would be licensed, and uh, certainly that's one way to, uh, to get um, exposure to commodities directly. Okay. Now, 
the stocks, bonds, broker-dealers uh, in the U.S., uh, for example, are regulated by the SEC. Canada, of course, is a similar organization, and other countries have their own version of an SEC. Uh, but as I understand it, commodity investing in the U.S. is not regulated by the SEC, but a separate organization. So a TCTA would be actually regulated by somebody else, correct? Yeah, so the, uh, the licensing or regulatory body in the U.S. is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Um, mm-hmm. That has historically been part of the Department of Agriculture, or at least that was the initial um, question of it. And that reflected the fact that it was largely used as a hedging vehicle, relatively lower risk. Um, It actually, um, you know, got uh, quite a bit of exposure to the CFTC during the Enron days because um, Ah, one of the board of directors, um, his wife, uh, Phil Graham, uh, um, from Texas, uh, was uh, also a chair of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission at the same time, and many people thought that Enron uh, took advantage of that relationship um, to uh, to change some of the rules. But they're the oversight body that looks at it, um, and uh, I think in general they've done a pretty good job. They're certainly trying to, like many regulatory uh, organizations uh, throughout the world, and, and certainly through the United States, uh, looking at um, trying to tighten up some of the loopholes, um, and you've seen at various times uh, Goldman Sachs and others um, being accused of taking advantage of, um, of their size in, in what in some cases is very small markets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, small world, isn't it, when you start finding those uh, relationships between the CFTC and big <laughs> companies? Uh, just just a small world, that's all. Uh, now, those commodity brokers uh, are, are then licensed by country, correct, so that uh, somebody that's handling uh, commodities, let's say, in the U.S. may not be able to sell them to investors in Europe, correct? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and it depends on the type of investor that you're, you're going for, the kind of arrangement. If you're looking at an accredited investor or someone who has a minimum net worth that's investable, then certainly there are offshore funds that would invest in commodities. I think the thing to keep in mind with commodities, and, and this is an important point, is that they're all, and given the size and importance of the United States and the global economy, they're virtually all of them are priced in U.S. dollars. So uh, generally speaking, you can invest as a a North American investor in one of the U.S. exchanges um, and and really get exposure to it. Certainly uh, certain um, uh, commodities like metals, for example, are traded on the London Metals Exchange, but the vast majority of of, uh, commodities are traded right in the United States, which gives American Mm -hmm. investors a huge leg up uh, in terms of understanding what's going on some transparency and some clarity as well. Now, you, you touched on a point, a very important one I'm going to make sure we, we, we address. In order to be a commodity investor, do I have to be an accredited investor, or can anybody invest in commodities? No, anybody can invest. Uh, there's retail funds um, that will take um, you know, a few hundred dollars or even a $1,000 investment. Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, if you want direct exposure and hedging or leverage, those uh, type of things are generally offered by offering memorandum and are only available to um, um, accredited investors. If you want to feel that you have a good sense for one particular commodity market, perhaps you worked in the energy business and you mm-hmm. feel you have a, a good handle on oil, uh, certainly, that's one that uh, has attracted a lot of interest. Many people uh, have made a huge amount of money in natural gas. 
Um, mm-hmm. It's very volatile. Even electricity, to a limited degree, is uh, is tradable in the United States. There's tradable points. California Oregon border is one. Um, PJM, which is Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland, uh, is another. Uh, so you've got uh, you've got several options, and, and for many people, because of um, their industry specialization, their interest, they choose to specialize in one, and, and they're welcome to uh, um, find a commodity broker, very much like you would a stockbroker, and open an account, um, and then you can do it as a self-directed uh, uh, commodity trader as well. So essentially the gambit is completely wide open from everything from managed funds uh, sold uh, to high net worth individuals on an offering memorandum basis, um, which is multi-strategy, multi-commodities, uh, to trade, your, trade, trade for yourself um, based on your interests and, and, um, and views. And let me just ask you about one, because I think you've covered uh, a number of the key ones, but uh, how about ETFs? They seem to be a growing sector, and that looks like a way that uh, investors now can get involved in commodities that yeah, uh, was a little bit more difficult. That's a great way to to, uh, to do it. I think that's incredibly important. Um, and, yes, you're absolutely right. That's a very easy way to get exposure. So if, for example, you decide that you know, natural gas has uh, been beaten up for some, mm-hmm. some time now, uh, you can buy a um, U.S. natural gas fund, uh, for example, and they'll go out and they'll buy the futures, and generally the ETFs buy it on a fully funded basis, meaning they're not mm-hmm. using leverage. And if you feel that rather than worrying about whether, and the beauty of a, of a direct drive in this way where you're, you're looking at a particular commodity is instead of, say, whether you're, you're trying to figure out whether Chesapeake, for example, is the way to play natural gas or not, you don't have to worry about anything going on at the corporate level. You don't have to worry about shenanigans from the CEO's office or um, you know, issues related to debt or debt repayments. You're essentially just taking a view on whether you think commodity prices will go higher or that particular commodity will go higher. Yeah, that's interesting. You just mentioned some uh, natural gas is a good example, which I happen to have some investment in, and uh, I happen to do some work in that field before. But that's one of the few I touched at the very beginning of the show that generally the commodity markets are the same around the world. Uh, but that's one with a huge price discrepancy between, let's say, Europe or or uh, uh, I'll just take those two examples: Europe and the U.S. Between natural gas prices are hugely different, mainly because it's not something that's easily transportable like uh, gold or steel or whatever else. Uh, so there is actually in that one case, and there may be a few others, uh, a large discrepancy between uh, national markets in uh, in natural gas. Uh, absolutely, Ron. I think you make a great point. I look at it and think of North America as essentially an island. Um, and right mm-hmm. now in the island of natural gas, you've got gas trading at $3.58 uh, a right. thousand cubic feet. Now, you go to Europe, that could easily be 11 or $12. And you go to exactly. Asia, it could be $18 a 1,000 cubic feet. So there's a huge arbitrage opportunity. So there's many ways to look at that, uh, look at companies that are building LNG plants, look exactly. at uh, companies that are, are, have fields that would largely supply proposed LNG uh, facilities, uh, look at field, uh, companies that are producing natural gas. Maybe they're North American-based, but they're producing in uh, Asia or they're producing in Europe. So there's a huge arbitrage opportunity, and as you know, uh, the United States is self-sufficient in terms of natural gas, and clearly, at least in that commodity, I would say, um, you know, really is a world leader, and uh, certainly oil looks very promising um, in terms of uh, its potential, but we've got further to go in the U.S., 
uh, in Canada. Uh, well, Canada is self-sufficient in oil, but uh, the U.S. is right. further to go in oil. But, yeah, absolutely, that is one that I think is very uh, interesting, and certainly many people have made huge fortunes in natural gas. Yeah, we need to set up eventually a show on that particular topic. It's been something I've been starting to dabble in as the LNG again because I was involved in that a while back. Well, but anyway, many projects have been commissioned in the last few years in the U.S. Um, right, seven or eight. So uh, clearly, uh, that will change things and change the dynamics and probably lower world price. But it'll be a windfall for those companies that are, are first to market with it. Exactly. Now, for our listeners that just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealthina Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portion on the archive, or if you missed prior shows, the archives are on www.wealthdna.us. Uh, today, our guest is John Stevenson. Our topic is commodity investing, and John wrote the book, specifically the little book of commodity investing. Now, an important point I wanted to touch on, John, is that most financial gurus, especially with stock investing, will say you have to invest in the long term. Very few people make money trading stocks. Is that true of commodities as well? Well, I think uh, certainly there's been people who've done both, um, invested in the long term and um, traded and been successful in both cases. My opinion, my personal opinion is that Mm -hmm. uh, knowledge is really the gateway to making money. And um, I believe that, um, you know, you should approach commodity investing as an investment rather than a trade, particularly early on, um, because, you know, it is uh, another language. It is uh, nuanced. Uh, there's seasonality in some commodities. Uh, natural gas, which we just spoke about, is, has seasonal patterns where mm-hmm. October through March tend to be uh, the high season. Uh, that's because uh, there's so much um, demand for heating throughout North America. It's driven by the Northeast primarily. Um, but to get to that point where you can make money in the short term, I think you really need to um, um, spend some time, learn about these markets. Uh, but I think uh, for most people, uh, investing is probably the way to go. Have a longer time horizon and look to developments over the next 12 to 18 months uh, and then position yourself accordingly. So I think it's, generally speaking, a, a market for um, uh, for investors rather than traders. Okay, a, a very, very important point. Now, John, for the do-it-yourself or DIY, as I refer to them, investor, how would they get to know the knowledge? How did they get that knowledge? You, you touched on it as the key, the knowledge and the skill to invest in, in commodities. Well, certainly listening to your radio show would be a good start. Um, Absolutely. I think there's been a number of books that have been written. Um, mine, of course, is one, but there there are others. Um, I think uh, to the large, you know, certainly it's featured at uh, investment symposiums, um, shows that uh, go around the country, and I think it's worthwhile to visit and listen. Mm -hmm. Um, I really advocate being a student, um, read widely, um, if at all possible. One of the best things of my job is I get to go see these assets. I know what an oil and gas field looks like. I know what oil sands look like. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've been to potash mines. Those are the the real gems, and that's hard for the average person. But many of these things are available on company websites where you can take virtual tours, where you can mm-hmm. see how they do things. I would stress looking at that and and focusing on some of the major, major commodities, whether it be uh, oil would probably be a very good one for someone to get a handle of because it gives you such an insight. Um, and frankly, when you look at currencies, um, many times countries like Canada, Australia, Brazil, Russia, they move 
with commodities and particularly oil. So <laughs> getting a sense of oil gives you a huge advantage. And one of the things I, I mentioned in the book is even if you don't want to invest in commodities, but you like the idea of investing in real estate, uh, for example, and you have a view that oil is going to go higher, well, you're better off investing in perhaps the Middle East or Canada or, uh, or um, you know, somewhere where it's a big oil-producing country gotcha. because you'll get the value not only through real estate but through the currency as well. Um, and if you have a little bit of a, an oil ETF, even better. Now, by the way, one of the rewards for doing a good job, as you are on our show today, is we, uh, we're going to make you work harder and, and keep you a little bit longer if we could. And I'll sure, ask our producer to give us a little bit more time. Uh, let's say that a 1,000 of our listeners are interested in commodity investing. Uh, and the next step, they go ahead and read your book. But after that, what percentage of them, of that 1,000, would probably be better off having a professional manage that portion of their portfolio or, turn it, or, or to, as you said, maybe get one of the retail funds or several retail funds uh, that manage it for them, as opposed to doing it themselves? I would say the vast majority of your portfolio uh, that you dedicate towards commodities should mm-hmm. be managed um, professionally. That could mean okay. um, buying an ETF, um, for example, where someone else is sure. responsible for it. If you're going out on your own, I think the reality is many people like to pull the trigger themselves. It's fun. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a business, and it's a full-time business for people who are doing it. So I think for most people who have something else that they're doing during the day, um, they should really keep a portion of it, whether it's 5 or 10% for themselves. That's fun money where they get the excitement, the thrill, and the enjoyment of investing. It's, it's like eating your junk food um, <laughs> in your diet where the rest should be given to someone else. Now, of course, as, as times change, as you maybe concentrate full-time on investing, if, if you're in that position, if you're retired and mm-hmm. that's what you do, well, then that proportion can reverse. But I think early on, it really is important to get some input um, and you, because you're really learning at this point. And uh, you know, mistakes can be costly, and certainly they can be costly in any investment. Uh, I think it's helpful to at least have some counsel as you go along. Okay. Now, how about professional commodity traders? Do they, you know, deal with the whole gamut of commodities and just, you know, uh, orange juice as well as oil? Or do they tend to focus on uh, a particular group or even a subset of that group? Uh, they typically uh, will look at most of them and have some uh, experience um, mm-hmm. in all of them, but they tend to focus on, on some of the major ones. Uh, you'll have uh, some that just do industrial metals, and they'll look at uh, – uh, industrial production numbers around the world, and they'll make they'll look at inventory levels and in the exchanges and off exchanges. Um, so you'll have some that just trade oil, um, and you're looking really for commodity trading advisors is what you're looking at, uh, and they'll have the designation CTA, and that's the professional right. designation uh, that they will carry. Um, and I think, uh, you know, in, in most cases, you'll need to look at individuals, look at uh, are they registered, do they have this designation, and if so, read their bio and find out what they specialize in. But some people um, will specialize, for example, exclusively in one commodity, and some firms will uh, give you uh, a fund, uh, or it may be the only fund they offer, that exclusively invests in natural gas, exclusively invests in oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and agricultural commodities, for example. So um, it's very um, uh, you know, important to know what the area of interest is 
um, and what their area of specialty is. So while they may have broad uh, understanding of these other markets, they'll typically f- focus on a, on a few of the major commodities. Okay, and that may be a hint for anybody that does want to do it themselves. They also should probably stay in a narrower category rather than trying to follow every single commodity think, and try to understand all markets. The that move these commodities, uh, although there are some similarities, uh, U.S. dollar is one that is similar across all commodities, but mm-hmm. generally speaking, you're looking at different factors uh, for these commodities. Weather, for example, is huge for natural gas, whereas global growth is huge for oil, So, and weather really doesn't... Uh, factor into it. So these are things that I think, you know, you can spend your whole career following uh, U.S. or North American or even global weather patterns and uh, to get a better handle on your natural gas trading. Uh, This is really a specialty area, I think, for most people. um, And therefore, you should seek out the, the best expert for that. Okay, and I'm going to make myself a note on that uh, LNG. I mean, I think that's an excellent idea to have on one of our shows next year Mm -hmm. uh, to talk about. Now, I'd like to put you through a little bit of um, um, kind of into a trainer role here or maybe an educator role, Uh, contrasting stocks versus uh, commodities, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'd like to throw a few factors at you. To, to help us understand how you know the, the stock investing versus commodity investing differs, uh, because obviously then the blend uh, makes more sense for the average portfolio than just one or just the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start with researching the fundamentals and trends. Needed in both, but which is harder, which takes more time uh, with stocks or commodities? Well, I think it's uh, similar, to be honest. I I, I think uh, stocks uh, require uh, a lot of company-specific research, and certainly we do that here. We build our our models individually. Uh, Commodities require, um, I guess, more of a macro or top-down view, uh, but nonetheless, uh, it still requires a fair amount of uh, understanding of what is going on. And then, uh, essentially, um, a prediction, uh, obviously not a certainty, but a prediction of where you think uh, prices will go in the future and what factors will lead you there. I think in both cases, you're really coming up with a thesis. Gold will go higher or lower, oil will go higher or lower, uh, mm-hmm. potash prices will rally or, or fall, and and a reason. And the reason can be totally wrong, and the thesis can be totally wrong. None of those matter, but what does matter is the follow-up, in my opinion. So if you believe that oil prices are going higher um, because you think global growth is increasing, that's a reasonable thesis. Um, But I think what you want to do as an investor is every day look at the newspaper, listen to this show, uh, look for other ways and other touch points or other pieces of information all of which is dedicated to the goal of trying to understand whether or not your thesis is working. And, of course, if it's not working, you can sell your position, move on, or create a thesis that's uh, a direct uh, you know, alternative to that. Or um, you'll see indications along the way. So I think it, in both cases it starts with a viewpoint, um, and then you follow up and constantly look to see whether the indicators are leading you down the road that you think you should be going or leading you away. And I think that's the key. But I think in terms of time, um, it, it's very much, uh, it's very similar. Um, in some cases, um, the work you do on the commodity side can help you out on the stock side. So if you have a good mm. view and a constructive view on oil prices, for example, 
that is the key determinant to looking at resource companies. If you can get the commodity call right, it doesn't matter if the management's incompetent. I mean, it certainly matters, but it doesn't matter to the degree you would think. You can buy resource stocks, so you can buy stocks as well, uh, and it opens up that whole category of investing, which is in the re- the resource area. So um, part of getting that right is getting that commodity call right. So I think it's similar from a work point. It just starts from um, uh, different um, viewpoints. One is very top-down. That's the commodity. The bottom-up is the individual stock. Okay. How about investment experience? Because most people, uh, young people, will kind of gravitate because they hear a lot about stacks, stocks, and they'll say, oh, you know, I think this stock will do well, and they'll buy some or whatever. Uh, but, you know, in reality, is is uh, stock investing easier from that standpoint or that, uh, you know, a, a person with very little experience should, uh, you know, get involved in one versus the other? Well, I think if you're very at the beginning of your um – a career probably stock investing makes a little more sense. Uh, mm-hmm. It's more relatable to many people. Okay. Uh, we can all go to the Apple Store and, and get a sense for mm-hmm. what's going on at the ground level. Commodities are a little harder, but I think if you take the longer term view, you could be a big fish in a small pond with commodities because so few people do go down that mm-hmm. route. So, for a young person who chooses to go down that uh, route, I think uh, you might be looking at a far more successful career. And because there's long times where commodities outperform any other asset class, you could make your whole name on it. Uh, George Soros and uh, Jim Rogers come to mind as people who have done pretty darn well by being early on the commodity call. Okay. How about risk and return of investing in uh, commodities, again, versus individual stocks? When I'm thinking, you know, managed fund is is, is totally different. But uh, how about the risk and return? Where do they stack up against each other? Well, when you look at risk and return, um, there's been many studies that have said uh, and looked at fully funded, meaning non-leveraged, and what they've said is a couple things that are interesting. One, if you add commodities to your portfolio of stocks and bonds, mm-hmm. you lower overall risk. And the reason for that is they typically move in opposite directions. And they typically have similar uh, investment return profiles to stocks. So. I would say stocks and commodities are essentially equivalent from a return standpoint. They just tend to peak at different times. And so that's why it's uh, in, you know, helpful, especially if we see inflation starting to run wild, if the consequence of, of quantitative easing is essentially um, inflation running wild. In mm-hmm. that environment, commodities are absolutely the place you want to be they outperform by a country mile stocks and bonds. So they have better inflation protection, similar uh, risk to uh, stocks, similar returns to stocks, and then, of course, your lower risk, lower return alternative is bonds. Now, for the more aggressive investor, how about the ability to use leverage? I think I know the answer to this one, but I'd definitely like to hear from you. I mean, I can use my margin account and my stocks uh, to the tune of, you know, 50%. That's an absolute max because I've got to leave some for uh, for those calls, uh, the margin calls. But, uh, you know, how about the use of leverage between uh, those two two markets? Well, hands down, you can do more with leverage uh, in commodities. There's no comparison. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can borrow 95% of the investment. And if you're right, it it is a a phenomenal way to make money. Um, Obviously, it's a phenomenal way to lose money if you're wrong. Um, But nonetheless, (laughs) I think in terms of the ability to use other people's money or borrowed money, commodities come out head and shoulders against that, uh, head and shoulders uh, above everything else as a a winner. Um, But it cuts both ways, but I, I think... 
for if you're aggressive, um, this is a way to, to make a fortune uh, rather quickly uh, or lose one. Okay, now let's say you are using leverage and you're going to go out for uh, you know those major things. How about the amount of time required if I were doing that with my in my stock portfolio versus a commodity portfolio? How much time would I likely need to spend either daily or monthly? Uh, how would they differ between stocks and commodities? Well, I think the news cycle for commodities tends to be much quicker than it does for stocks. So stocks tend okay. to be driven by the quarter. Well, that's not the case for um, uh, for commodities, and and it's a more global type of business because we really have one world. Uh, the U.S. might produce 65% of the world's seaborne corn, mar- corn, for example, which it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have to look at trends uh, in China to know if they're going to import U.S. corn, for example, uh, whether feeder cattle uh, in Europe are going to go from uh, wheat uh, or other grains to corn. Um, so there's a lot that goes into just looking at a single market, and I think you need to be essentially more on top of things because of the use of leverage, because of the fact it's global. Uh, so I think you need at least uh, half an hour or more a day uh, to be an effective commodity investor. Okay. And I, I guess I kind of pulled together a couple points you made that I think are, are, are fascinating. One is the commodity cycle tends to be longer, more like 20-year cycles, versus the stock market cycle tends to be more like a five-year to 10-year, five-year up and down to three years, or about eight, five to eight. But on the other hand, the movement triggers, in other words, the stock market doesn't tend to jump uh, 3 or 5% in a given day. I mean, there were some periods in time where that happened, uh, where the commodity markets can move uh, very dramatically on any given day within that cycle. So I think there's, there's, there's a, a big difference in their volatility within a long cycle versus relatively tame in a short cycle. I think that's true. I think the the thing to keep, uh, and that's why I suggested earlier that it probably is, especially early on, important to look at this longer cycle and be an investor mm-hmm. rather than a trader. Uh, certainly, you can shorten your time frame for investment uh, as your expertise develops, um, but I do think it's very different, and the drivers are very different, and. Um, you know, it, it it tends to be um, something that is very interesting to watch because they, it is a counter uh, market to stock your traditional asset classes. It, it, it tends to work well uh, when real estate also is working well, when, when real things are working well, and they tend to work well in inflation environments, and that's when stocks and bonds do poorly. Uh, so I think getting a basic understanding and following one or two of the major markets will really help your stock or bond investing because you'll look at what's going on in the world of gold, you'll look at the world of oil, and you'll have a better sense of what that implies for stocks uh, as well as bonds. So it's hugely important, and I think you're absolutely right uh, You know, in your summary uh, of these longer cycles, um, and certainly I think we're setting up for some very attractive days ahead uh, for many of these uh, subsectors in the commodity world, the, the most important and most uh, opportune probably being materials and then followed by energy. Now, one of the key reasons we asked you to join us, John, is you've been named one of the top 50 portfolio managers in Canada for a number of years. That's quite an honor. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, no, I was tremendously uh, proud of that. It's something that has happened. Uh, we've been doing this uh, in ranking, uh, well, globally, but uh, certainly uh, by geography for uh, five years now. And I've been fortunate in those five years to every single year that the award has been awarded uh, to get that honor. 
Uh, I think it's a recognition of, of the work and, and uh, the fact that uh, we've been uh, doing a good job here at First Asset. Uh, we've been uh, outperforming our benchmark uh, quite handily, but at much uh, reduced risk. And we talked a little bit about risk in this show. Uh, it's important to manage not only uh, the upside, but also the downside, uh, the downside risk. Uh, so I think it's um, it's something that I, I, I feel proud of and uh, hopefully can do it a six-year in a row. <laughs> but yeah, but so that far really is. a good start. So Exactly. Uh, no, that, is, wow. that is tough, uh, you know, year after year. Now, so many advisors, and I'll even pick on the newsletter publishers even more so, love to tout their great predictions. Oh, we made 3,000% on this prediction, but fail to mention their bad ones. And I assume when they select portfolio managers um, – for those awards, and I think it's Brendan Woods that does the um, the selection. Uh, they look at overall performance, so they're not looking at your your good picks. They're looking at your overall performance, correct? Oh, absolutely. They're looking at uh, the performance and adjusting it for risk, um, and that's key. Uh, certainly, mm-hmm. you hear uh, lots about someone who, uh, as you say, whether it was a newsletter writer or or even a portfolio manager um, or others who were up uh, a huge amount, but perhaps they only had one stock. Um, and there's a huge amount of risk in that. Um, so I, I think what you really want as an investor is better risk-adjusted returns, and certainly that's our slogan here at First Asset is we're trying to uh, help investors uh, achieve um, better risk-adjusted returns because uh, yesterday's 2,500% uh, return uh, could be tomorrow's um you know, 1,200% decline. So really, I think a conservative approach over time is what really builds wealth. Exactly. Now, before we forget, let's remind our listeners of the website where they can get more information about you. That is www.stevensonwithaphfiles.com. Excellent. And again, PH, not a V in Stevenson. Uh, we've covered a lot of aspects, John, of commodity investing, including then some stock investing. What did we miss, or what are some additional comments you'd like to share with our listeners today? I think we've done a great job, Ron, and credit to you on that uh, in covering the gambit. I'd, I'd just like to highlight that um, stock uh, and bonds are what most people grow up thinking of. Right. But uh, commodities are something that uh, do very well. They, they move in long-dated cycles. And even a cursory understanding of commodities will make you a better stock or bond investor, whether you choose to invest in a commodity or not. But they are important, huge segments of the market in the global economy, whether they be the emerging markets or countries like your neighbor next door, Canada, uh, have a huge stake in what happens in the world of commodities. And... Uh, it really helps you understand emerging markets, uh, global asset flows. It's uh, a big piece of the picture, and you're just not a complete investor if you don't know at least a little something about commodities. Absolutely agree with you on that one. Now, there are many more topics where, frankly, related to commodities and portfolio allocation that I'm glad we covered as much as we did, uh, but I'm hoping you'd be willing to join us again in the future so we oh, can be talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely okay, fantastic. Thank you for having us, uh, having joined us today, uh, John. It really has been a pleasure. You've done a great job in giving us a good overview, very calmly, informationally. Um, uh, just really appreciate your having uh, the time to join us. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure, Ron, and uh, con- congratulations on doing such a great job of uh, educating investors. I can't think of a more important uh, or necessary task. So thank you again. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you, John. 
And before we uh, close, let me just mention a few of the key points that we covered. Uh, obviously, we covered a lot of things with commodities. The uh, Some of the points that John made, and, I, and by the way, I wholeheartedly agree that commodities should be part of your portfolio, especially for larger portfolios. Uh, he said he's a very optimistic and the stimulus, so let's call it steroids, being used all over the world, indeed is uh, pushing the markets higher. Now, that said, I'll borrow a phrase that Jason Slade uses, and I mentioned him earlier. Investing in commodities is like cooking with garlic. A little garlic can add zest to your food, but too much can ruin the meal. So yes, uh, adding commodities to your portfolio does indeed, as, as John appropriately mentioned, lower the risk of the portfolio, just like a stock portfolio all by itself is going to be a higher risk than adding bonds into that because of the zigging and zagging, that technical term we all use. Uh, but when you add commodities in, it actually lowers it even further. So where everybody thinks commodities is risky, uh, not having commodities in your portfolio might be even riskier. Um, they are an ownership-type instrument, as I mentioned earlier, so they are a substitute for stocks, not necessarily a substitute for loan instruments like bonds. Now, I generally place commodities in kind of the top level of your investment pyramid, but that's more if you're going to be aggressively trading. Uh, some of our guests have appropriately suggested that gold and other precious metals should actually be in the second level of your uh, pyramid just because it provides that hedge against uh, times of crisis or inflation. But quite frankly, because of that lower risk, I have to agree that some managed commodities uh, should be part of your portfolio, even if you don't have a million dollars yet. But keep in mind, our goal is to make sure that all of our listeners are millionaires. And as your portfolio grows, commodities absolutely have to be part of that. And then, of course, the trade-off. Should commodities be part of a large portfolio, or will commodities help you create a large portfolio? I think the answer is yes. Now, in hindsight, I've accumulated too large of a um, portion of my portfolio in precious metals in the last two years. But again, hindsight is perfect, and knowing that ahead of time is harder. So I've been accumulating them as prices dropped. But I wouldn't sell them now. I would indeed uh, you know, still continue to believe that inflation is coming. Uh, and it is an excellent hedge. Uh, and as John mentioned, having some of those commodities in there, and I just have to have a heavy weighting in precious metals, uh, does lower the risk. Knowledge is the key. You come here to get some of it. And clearly, a book like John's on the little book of commodity and, uh, investing would be a great one to read. Uh, what are commodities? Well, as we said, uh, the real things, orange juice, sugar, coffee, there are groups of commodities like those um, soft commodities. There are the grains, the metals, the energy. And as you know, I like to refer to Investopedia when it comes to definitions. And they say a basic good used in commerce that's interchangeable with other, other commodities of the same type. Commodities are most often used as inputs in the production of other goods and services. In other words, a ton of oranges is a ton of oranges, although there are sometimes different grades or oranges that may have different prices. That was origins, not oranges. Uh, if you'll be allocating a small amount of commodities, easiest way is through some of those uh, retail mutual funds or ETFs, or potentially emphasizing some of the stocks that are in the commodity arena, as John mentioned. 
All of those can be purchased in a brokerage account, uh, whether with a financial advisor or your self-managed a discount broker type account. For larger investments in commodities, it may make sense to set up a commodity account and have it managed by professionals, a CTA, or if you're willing to take the time to learn about specific commodities or groups, then trading on your own. But only a small percentage of it should be uh, managed by yourself. Very few commodity investors are successful, and the guys that do it do it on a full-time basis. Now, using leverage in your commodity account can dramatically improve your returns, as John said, but understand the flip side. Leverage also dramatically increases your risk as well. Now, one of the big attractions is commodity um, commodities, and especially in those accounts, uh, commodity accounts, is you can easily be short and make money on the price decline as easily as you can be long and make it on the increase. And very quickly, you can switch between those positions. You can do that with stocks. It just requires a little bit more time uh, to execute uh, than with a commodity account. Now, investing in commodities isn't for everyone, but it definitely is people that have large portfolios. And we want each of our listeners to be millionaires, as I mentioned. So clearly, commodities should be part of yours. On our next show, we'll be talking about topics received a lot of coverage in the U.S. and international media lately, for the wrong reasons. We'll have June Schaefer as our guest to discuss the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, also known as the Non-Affordable Care Act. For those of you still unable to log into that exchange, you might want to wait until after that show to try to log in. Why? You'll find out. Uh, Now, I'll admit, listeners outside of the U.S. like John Stevenson probably will not be impacted directly, but I'm sure they'll find the topic fascinating, especially when they contrasted the health care alternatives wherever they live. Now, fortunately, I had June come and talk to a networking group I host, so I'm going through the process of setting up health care insurance, but not through the exchange. Why? You'll hear the reasons on our next show. Now, if you're wondering why I'm setting up health insurance now, Again, I'll share, share, share a little bit more detail in the uh, upfront portion of next week's uh, or next show two weeks from now. But I can give you the headline: Even millionaires no longer allowed to self-insure unless they want to pay even more in taxes. Now, I'm hoping to have a guest in December or January share his experience with commodity trading. He retired early and now makes a living as a commodity trader, a rare breed, indeed. Now, remember, one of the best ways to increase your wealth, tune into this show twice a month. We share the investment fundamentals, some great ideas, and help diversify and grow your portfolio. In other words, gain the knowledge Don John talked about appropriately today. Next week, Wealth DNA Radio Show, fourth Monday of November, and that is Monday, November 25th, 9 a.m. Arizona time, same place, same time. As far as I know, nobody will be changing their clocks. Just change it for them. I'll be returning from a trip, even if I'm still groggy, June will certainly hold your attention. As soon as we have the lineup of guests and topics, we'll find them on www.dna.us. There you'll find the archive of past shows. And if you have comments or um, suggestions, questions, just send them to me, ron at wealthdna.us. If you haven't been informed about these shows with uh, an email from me, then again, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about those future shows and events. Happy investing, and maybe that should include commodities.
You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.